departed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, welcome back, everybody. And so we're continuing the Eucharist part two. Last week was all about the Mass, and now we're going to be talking about the Eucharist in itself. Um, and the, the foundational text is the, the institution narratives from the Gospels. Uh, just to, to remind you, we were looking at Matthew 26, 26. Uh, let me just read through this as background. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a chalice, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All right, so we're going to come back to that text uh, and kind of build around it, both in Old Testament and then to New Testament, uh, to give some foundation about what's going on there. Uh, the first thing I really want to mention, though, is the Catechism, one of the, the more important lines, quoting from the Second Vatican Council, says the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. Right? It's the source because it is Jesus himself, and that's the, the thing we're going to be focusing on today, the, the Eucharist as Christ himself, uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity. So it's the source from which all graces flow, uh, but it's also the summit, the thing that we are uh, driving towards and the thing that we most want to attain. Because it's not something, it's someone. It's Christ. So, again, the, in, to, to back up uh, what we've been talking about over the last few classes, this is the third part of the sacraments of initiation, with baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist, those are the three things that fully incorporate you into the Christian life. But the Eucharist, again, it, it's more complicated and complex than the others um, in, in its very nature. Uh, and they, they talk about it in three different parts. It's uh, the sacrifice sacrament, which we dealt with last week. Uh, it's the sacrament of communion, in which you actually receive Christ and commune with him, Co meaning with and union, you know, it's union with Christ Himself, and also it's the sacrament of His presence, in which you can go to the Lord and and worship. Let me just talk about a, a few things as background, which we've done with all the other sacraments, um, and, and remember we're going to come back to this idea as well: the sacrament of the Eucharist, or all the sacraments in general are the prolongation of the incarnation in time, right? It's Jesus come in human flesh, you know, and it answers the, the question that comes about at the end of Matthew's gospel when his last words, when he says, I'm with you always, right? So he is with us always in the sacrament and in a special way in the Eucharist. So the sacrament itself, the minister is... Uh, a validly ordained priest 
or bishop. Uh, deacons cannot confect the Eucharist. And the material, bread and wine, simple bread, wheat flour and water, and wine. And it's not grape juice, right? It has to be fermented. Uh, and the form, again, we've just read that, is the words, this is my body, this is my blood. Now, the origins of it. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Um, one of the things we just mentioned, the, the material used in the sacrament is, is bread and wine. The first instance we see, we mentioned this last week, was the whole episode with Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, right? Because Melchizedek, it mentions, it's the first mention of a priest in the scriptures, by the way, the first explicit mention. And he's not just a priest, he's a priest king. We talked about some of the theories behind him as Shem, as the firstborn son of Noah. Uh, the significance of the firstborn son uh, we went into quite a bit last week. But he's a priest king, and right after that, it mentions what he offers, bread and wine. Okay, Which, when you go into Jewish society, was one of the different types of sacrifices. They had blood sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, but they also had a, what's called a todah sacrifice, a thank offering. Right? And that was bread and wine. So this would have been part of that, the todah. It's a, a thank offering. It's not necessarily in Jewish society. It's for you know, praise and honor of God, not for the forgiveness of sins. Right? But all the sacrifices we see in the Old Testament point forward to the sacrifice of Christ. Right? So these are all prefiguring. They're all pointing forward to what Jesus is going to accomplish for us. Okay, most specifically at both the Last Supper and at Calvary, which are two sides of the same coin. All right, so the bread and wine, and by the way, let me just get this out of the way first. The early church, when dealing with this, understood, you know, to the best of its ability what was going on, but the language was difficult, okay? So it, it had to coin certain terms, like Trinity was not in the scriptures, but, you know, the church understood what, as far as it can, what Jesus was talking about with the Trinity, so it coined the term to kind of summarize everything. And they did something similar with the Eucharist, okay? They came up with this term, transubstantiation, which is borrowing from uh, philosophy, philosophic language uh, to talk about what's actually taking place right? Trans means to change and substantiation, the substance. Okay, in philosophy, they distinguish between substance and accidents. Substance is what a thing is at its heart, all right? It's, it's real essence. Accidents are the changeable things, color, texture, right? And we can talk about a chair, the substance of a chair, you know, is something that you can sit on. But there's all sorts of different accidents. You can have things that look totally different, yet they're both chairs. They can be different colors, different sizes, different shapes, but they are all chairs. So substance is what a thing truly is. The accidents are the external things. So transubsta transubstantiation is this term which conveys the fact that the substance of the bread and wine is truly changed into Jesus' body and blood, but the accidents, the things that resemble the bread and wine stay the same, okay? But the substance change. So what we see still appears to be bread, but it's 
its nature has changed. It is now Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. And we'll talk later about, you know, where that comes from from the scriptures, right? Because we have to take Jesus' word on it, you know, in a certain sense. But, I mean, there have been many miracles, by the way. Don't There's, there's uh, evidence beyond just the text, right? And some very powerful ones, too. Uh, if we get some time, I'll, I'll mention... One of them, at least, is probably the most famous. Uh, but let's let's get back to the the text here and go to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, we talked about this last time. This is Abraham's offering of Isaac when God commands him to offer his son, his only son, you know, on Mount Moriah. Remember, Moriah was one of the mountain ranges where the temple was built. Okay, and the tradition goes that's that site where he offered or where he was going to offer Isaac, became the, the Temple Mount, where the Holy of Holies was established and built. So in that passage, a couple of things that I want to mention here. Remember, it's they're going up there to sacrifice, and Abraham tells Isaac, you know, we're, we're going to offer a sacrifice. And on the way, and this is chapter 22, verse 7, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Right? The lamb is going to become important. Right, we're going to talk about this a lot tonight, the lamb. Right? And what does he respond? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide the lamb. Now, what happens later? God stops him from sacrificing, right? And we see, uh, or he sees something else uh, that he offers as a sacrifice in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And by the way, that's a prefiguring of the crown of thorns uh, for Jesus, uh, the ram. And Abraham uh, offers up the ram. But what is the ram not? It's not a lamb, right? It's not a lamb. And Abraham renames this place, okay? If you go down to verse 14, the next verse, it says, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. Two examples here. It's future tense. It's not the Lord has provided. It's not talking about the ram. It's talking about something in the future. The Lord will provide the lamb, but it hasn't happened yet. Okay? Keep that in mind. And why don't you flip over to Exodus 16, chapter 16. Now, last time we talked about the whole Passover event, and that's going to be, um, again, the foundation, because the text we looked at at the very beginning with Jesus, there was a Passover meal where he offered bread and wine and confected them to be his body and blood right so we looked at that last time that's in exodus chapter 12 right where uh they offer a lamb okay so again it's consistent with what we see in genesis that the lord will provide a lamb right but the people are providing this and again the context here is that they are offering the lamb so that their firstborn sons will not be killed 
Okay, every firstborn son in all of Egypt, even of the animals, is going to die. But if they slaughter a lamb, roast it, and take its blood and spread it over the doorposts and then eat the lamb, their firstborn sons would survive till morning. Okay, that's the Passover. It's the tenth plague. It's the thing that eventually gets Pharaoh to drive them out of Egypt. Right? But it's a lamb that they have to slaughter. All right. Then in chapter 14, we get them crossing over the Red Sea into the wilderness. Okay? Again, the early church saw this as a representation of baptism because you've come out of the slavery, which Egypt represents the slavery of sin. Okay? That's what Egypt represents. It's slavery. Right? We're slaves to sin. Okay? The, the Egyptians are like original sin to us. Uh, so we escape the sinfulness through the waters of baptism into the wilderness where we are right now. We're into the wilderness and we hope to one day cross over into the promised land. Okay, But while they're there in the wilderness, in chapter 16, God provides for them again as they're in the wilderness. And we talked about this before. All the sacraments represent us in a spiritual sense. And there's a pattern here which corresponds to what we go through in this life. Baptism is birth. Okay, we grow up, that's confirm, confirmation. You know, we get bigger and stronger. Okay, the Eucharist is our food. And so we see an example of this in chapter 16. While they're in the wilderness, God feeds them. This is Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. They set out from Elim. And all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So it's about a month later. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us in, out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Right? So if you read through Exodus, you get used to the attitude, you know? Uh, and if you have teenagers at home, it'll kind of remind you of, of that type of attitude. Good thing my sons aren't here right now. Uh, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven. Keep that expression in mind. We're going to see it. And Jesus is going to refer back to this episode. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Right? The idea here, you gather twice as much on the sixth day, because the seventh day is the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to do work. And God will provide, he'll have it doubled up on the day before, so on the Sabbath day, you don't have to gather. You'll have enough. Okay. So, that's Exodus. God feeds them in the wilderness. Then, one more passage from the Old Testament, 
flip over to Isaiah chapter 53. It's over the halfway mark. You got Psalms in the middle, so flip a little bit to the right of that. It's the biggest book in the Old Testament, 66 chapters. Isaiah, the um, early church referred to it as the fifth gospel because there were so many references that were attributed to Jesus. Uh, and this is actually one of the most famous. Chapter 53 is one of the four suffering servant psalms. You know, it's a song talking about this servant of God who suffers for the people. Okay, now bring with you all the stuff we've talked about with the Lord will provide the lamb, you know, and the, the lamb that is sacrificed in the Passover. And we get to this servant song and we see so many things that remind us of Good Friday. Uh, for example, in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Uh, with his stripes, we are healed. So go to chapter 53, verse 7. This is where I wanted to really begin here. Got it? <laughs> All right. Okay, 53, verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. Okay, and then scooting down to verse 10. We see, yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when he makes himself an offering for sin. Right? He is an offering for sin. He is the lamb, this suffering servant. He's a lamb who is offered. And down to verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That phrase, he poured out his soul to death. Just keep it right there for a second. And let me flip back to Matthew at the Last Supper and read the line about the chalice again and compare it to what we just saw. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. We talked about that last time. The blood of the covenant are the words from Mount Sinai when God established a covenant with them, right? Jesus is establishing the new covenant, and he wants you to think about the Sinai covenant because this is taking it to the next level. It's not just about the Israelites. It's about everybody. He's fulfilling that third promise to Abraham for the worldwide blessing. He's establishing a covenant with all of humanity. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right? That's the language from Isaiah 53, that his life is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Right? Because he's making intercession for the transgressors, the, the sinners. Okay? This is the language. The suffering servant is that lamb. Right? He's the lamb who is being sacrificed. He's the Passover lamb. All of this was hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born that Isaiah is writing this.
Everybody good so far? All right, now let's get into the New Testament. Well, Isaiah's not writing this about himself, no. 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 He's writing it about the, the Messiah, essentially. Okay. Right? Yeah, it's just, he labels him as the suffering servant, right? But that's going to be Jesus. You know, that's how all the early church fathers interpreted this. Okay, so let's go to the Gospel of John, and we'll be in John here for a little bit. Uh, flip over to chapter 19, but I want to mention something from chapter 1 to begin with. Remember the beginning of John's Gospel, we have this long introduction, uh, which brings us all the way back to creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was Jesus, right? That's the context for all of this. Right after this, these first 18 verses, which introduce the Gospel, which take us back to Genesis, we see John the Baptist Right? And he sees Jesus, and he says, not behold Jesus, not behold the Messiah. He says, behold the Lamb of God. Right, That's how we're introduced to him by John. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, a Jew back in the first century hearing that is going to think of two things right off the bat. The first thing he's going to think about are the daily sacrifices. Twice a day in the temple, there was a sacrifice where a lamb was slaughtered, right? In the morning and in the evening, a general sacrifice for the sins of the people. But more importantly, the major feast of the year was the Passover, the lamb, right? The lamb, which goes back to, to Abraham, the Lord will provide. And here's John the Baptist looking at Jesus and saying, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus is that Lamb that was promised. So, flip over to chapter 19. And this is Good Friday. The day Jesus is condemned to death and crucified. Okay, In verse 14, we get the context for this. From John's perspective here, it says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, he says. The day of preparation for the Passover, the sixth hour, remember the Passover actually would begin at night, at six o'clock, right? So this is just a few hours before the beginning of Passover. The sixth hour was the time when the, the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple in preparation for the feast. Right? So Jesus is going to be giving up his life at the very hour when the Passover lambs are going to be slaughtered. Jesus will be slaughtered along with them because he is the lamb. That's not an accident. John is pointing this out to get you to associate the two. Skipping over to uh, verse 28. Jesus has been nailed to the cross. <clears throat> And we get, there's a few words that he mentions from the cross. The first one, the, the first one I want to talk about here is in chapter 28. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And what happens after that? A bowl full of vinegar stood there. So they put a sponge full of vinegar 
on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word I want you to focus on is hyssop, okay? Because it's a very specific term. And if you go back to the book of Exodus, what you see in chapter 12, verse 47, is that when you slaughtered the Passover lamb, you had to paint its blood over the doorpost and the lintel of your house, right? What you had to use was a hyssop branch. Okay, you had to use a hyssop branch. And here's John specifically mentioning that term. He could have said anything or not said anything, you know. But he talks about a sponge, and you use the term vinegar, but it's essentially a weak wine. Okay, so it's wine that Jesus has been given. And an interesting thing about that, at the Last Supper, after he consecrates the chalice, back in chapter 26 of Matthew, remember he says, uh, drink of it all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, right? That's, it's a glass of wine that has now become his body, or his blood. Verse 29, I tell you, I shall not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that's what's happening on the cross. He says, I thirst. You know, he's ready to enter his Father's kingdom. And the new covenant is going to be consummated there on the cross. And he's drinking it from a hyssop branch, which in the Old Testament held the blood of the Passover lamb. Now he's taking the wine Remember what happened in the Last Supper? He took wine and turned it into blood. Right? Now he's taking this, drinking again, as he talked about. There's a whole different uh, thing I could talk about. Scott Hahn, if you get a chance, has a great tape series. He's a, it's now a book uh, talk, called The Fourth Cup. Uh, in the Passover Seder, there's four cups of wine that are drunk. And the, the third cup, the cup of the Eucharist, Paul mentions it as the cup of blessing. In the Passover Seder, that's the third cup. And he specifically says, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine. He won't drink the fourth cup, which is an odd thing to say. I can't go into great deal about detail about this. But essentially, what he does is interrupt the Passover, you know, and then we have the trials and everything else. And then he's crucified. He says, I thirst. And he completes the Passover there on the cross by drinking the wine. And that's why he says it's finished. The Passover is complete on the cross. If you got a chance to, to read the book or, or listen to the audio, it's really fascinating. It goes into great deal to, detail about this. But again, the idea here is he's tying the Passover in to what's happening on the cross. And one last thing uh, in John's Gospel to, to really tie everything together. In verse 30, I'm um, sorry, 33, same chapter 19, they already break the, the legs of the two thieves that are on either side of them. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a, a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 
And John stops the narrative and makes this commentary about this. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Again, that's from Exodus, talking about the Passover lamb. It had to be a one-year-old lamb, and they specify that its bones could not have been broken. Right? This is in fulfillment of that. They break the two thieves' legs, which was a common practice to kind of speed death, you know, because when you're crucified, what you end up dying from is asphyxiation. You can't breathe. Every time you have to take a breath because of how your body is oriented, you have to push up on the nails that are holding you there in order to take a breath. And then you sink back down where you can't breathe. Right? So you break the legs, they can't push up anymore, and they end up suffocating. All right, but Jesus has already died, so they don't have to break his legs. And John points that out. That's to fulfill the whole Passover sacrifice. Okay, so Jesus is the lamb. Right? I think we've established that pretty firmly. But back in the Passover, you killed the Passover lamb instead of your firstborn son dying. Right? You killed the lamb, you painted its blood over the, the door, you roast the lamb, but you had to eat the lamb. Right? If you didn't eat the lamb, your child would be dead in the morning. Your firstborn son would be dead. And this is a common theme throughout all these sacrifices that we see, and even into the temple period where they sacrifice, The priests would partake in the sacrifice. They would join with it. Okay? The idea here is, you know, the animal is dying in your place. And so you eat the animal and so you are in some ways participating in that. It's a similar concept with what's going on in the Eucharist. But is that really what happened? Okay? Did Jesus when he said this is my body and this is my blood did he mean it metaphorically? Well, the problem with that is in the ancient world, just like today, imagine two boxers about to go at it in the ring, you know, and they're taunting each other. And one of them says, I'm going to eat you alive, right? You understand what he's saying, don't you? And it's the same expression. You can see evidence of this in the scriptures as well. To eat someone's flesh means in a metaphorical way, to do harm to them, to do violence to them, right? So as a metaphor, it makes no sense in the Last Supper. And as it happens in John's Gospel, if we flip back to chapter 6 in John, a year before, again at the Passover, this is the Passover one year before he dies, he talks all about what's going to happen a year from then. John chapter 6. And the segue into this speech that he gives in the beginning of, of John's Gospel, and in verse 4 it mentions the time frame. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Okay, That's the time frame that all this is taking place. John's pointing it out so that you understand Passover. It's connected with everything that's going to happen here. Right? He doesn't use those terms on a whim. He's very careful about everything he points out. 
So the Passover, and then what happens there? Jesus feeds the 5,000 with what? With bread, okay? And he multiplies the bread, okay? We're going to come back to that. And again, the, the words that he uses, I think we mentioned this last time. There's the four verbs that he uses, uh, took, given thanks, John points out, instead of bless. It's an equivalent term, but John is is going one step beyond by saying giving thanks because the word Eucharist, which was a common term even in the first century, Eucharisteo means to give thanks, right? The Eucharist was a term which talked about Jesus' body and blood in the bread and wine. So he took, given thanks, distributed, okay, and, and gave it to his disciples, right? Then, moving on down, we have a discussion, and let's begin in verse 30. So this is the next day after all of this, and the people are basically asking for a sign, even though they'd seen the day before the multiplication of the loaves. And so they're asking for a sign. So beginning in verse 30, they say, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Right? As if multiplying, you know, five loaves and feeding 5,000 wasn't enough. But what they're really asking for is like some type of sign in the sky, you know. And they ask, what work do you perform? And they give an example. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, which we just read about. Okay, he fed them in the wilderness. And they're asking the same thing, feed us, you know. Essentially, you know, they're, they're basically saying, you know, you, you helped us out yesterday. Why don't you help us out so we don't have to work anymore? Just feed us every day, you know. And that's probably some of the motivation for this. Others just don't believe, you know. Regardless of the evidence, they're not going to believe. So verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, Right? And that's like an oath formula, you know, it's amen, amen, literally, right? He's, he's using the, the most serious language here, and it's actually covenant language where he's almost swearing an oath by what he's saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. Okay, you get that. The, the bread that came before in Exodus was a metaphor. It represents something, okay? And that's the general concept you get between the old and the new. The old was, the old covenant was where you had prefiguring, where you had symbols. In the new covenant, you have the reality. The manna was a symbol. Now we're in the new covenant, we have the reality. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Right? And so controversy erupts from this. Right? Skip down to verse 48, and things really come to a head here. And Jesus you know, pulls the gloves off. He, 
he really gets to the heart of the matter, beginning in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Right? God will provide the bread of life. God will provide the lamb. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. Verse 50. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Boom. Right? And they freak out. They don't see this as a metaphor. Okay? What happens after this? Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They have this imagery of cannibalism here. Okay? This guy right in front of him is a carpenter from Nazareth. He's going to give us his flesh to eat? And we're never going to die because of that? He's nuts. That's what they're thinking. But Jesus doubles down on it. Verse 53. So Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Okay, he, he pounds it home four times, he mentions it. And the really thing, the thing that would really kind of hit home for a Jew is the mention of drinking blood, right? That's a real no-no. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, that's the one thing you could not do is drink an animal's blood. The idea behind it is the blood is the life force which flows through an animal. That's the, the way they viewed things, right? You drink an animal's blood, you're taking something from that animal that you have no right to. Right? The penalty would be excommunication. You're out of the covenant if you drink blood. And Jesus is saying, you not only have to eat my flesh, you have to drink my blood. And the idea behind it is the same relationship that he has with the Father. That's the relationship that we will have with him. See that in verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. Right? It's his life that we take into us that will truly give us life. Eternal life. Go back to Adam. The original sin. What was the threat that God gave? He gave them a simple command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. Right? And the devil came to Adam and Eve 
and said, you won't die. Well, who was right? Was God right or the devil? Well, in a certain sense, they both were, right? Because they didn't physically die that day, although they would eventually die, right? The, they were supposed to live forever, physically, but yet they died. That's part of the curse that we see afterwards when God lays down the consequences. They would die. Death was the curse. But the day that they ate it, they did die spiritually. They died spiritually. The life of God that was in them died. They were cut off from God. The very source of their life, they separated themselves from. And here's Jesus giving them what? Fruit of the grain and the vine, right? That's why the cross is often talk, talked about in the early fathers as the tree of life. Remember, there were two trees back in Genesis. From the cross, the tree of life, we have the true fruit that will give us life. So, he lays it down for them. Now, some people, they get through this and they still say, well, he was speaking metaphorically. How could he possibly promise to give us his flesh? How could, it still looks like bread and wine. What's the, the aftermath of this? Go to verse 60. Because this is really where we see the consequences of what Jesus' words are. You really can't appreciate it until you see the fallout. Verse 60. Many of his disciples, went, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, we're talking disciples now. The people have been following them around for years. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And notice the language. Not who can believe it, but who can even listen to it? Who can even be in the same room when somebody's saying this kind of stuff? Who can listen to it? Verse 61, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? He's talking about the ascension, right? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. Now, some people who uh, talk about the Catholic Church as being, you know, full of it when they're talking about the Eucharist, they, they point to this verse. See, it's the Spirit that gives flesh. It's the flesh, or the Spirit that gives life. It's the flesh is of no avail. Well, that, if you take it literally from this perspective, you know, that everything Jesus said about his flesh, that it's of no avail, that makes nonsense of everything he just said. It doesn't make sense. What he's saying is that the flesh he's going to give has the Spirit in it. Right? It's not his dead flesh. It's his resurrected flesh. The flesh that died for us, but then rose again. Because it's the spirit that gives life. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Right? It's not a metaphor. It's those have the very words of life in what he's saying, that you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Verse 64. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who those 
were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Notice this. The first time that the idea of a betrayer, Judas, is mentioned. And the thing, the context for it is the Eucharist. This is where Judas fell. He couldn't believe in the Eucharist. Right? This is where things fell apart for him. Verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. Verse 66. It always struck me. This is chapter 6, verse 66. Six. Right. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. This is the only passage in all of the Gospels where we have evidence of people who have been following him who walk away, right? It was that decisive. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, 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 I was just speaking symbolically here. You know, I didn't mean it literally. Come on back, right? As a teacher, he would have had a responsibility to give them the truth. He is the truth. But what does he do? Verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, will you also go away? He's showing them the door, you know? He's willing to lose everybody over this. That's how important it is. Will you also go away? And Simon Peter stands up and answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I mean, it's like Peter saying, I have no idea what you're talking about here, but we know you. We trust you. Right? I, I don't understand this. To whom shall we go? Do you have any alternatives? Are there any other messiahs out there we might be able to follow around? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. We trust you, is what he's saying. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. So John really hammers it home. This is the issue where Judas fell. It's the Eucharist. Don't be a Judas. Right? Now, Flash forward, next generation. You know, we have his death and resurrection. What happens? Is this idea consistent with what we see later on in the rest of the New Testament? Well, let's check Paul out. In 1 Corinthians here, Paul gives us, and that's a curious thing. In John's Gospel, we don't have the institution narrative of the Last Supper, Right? We don't have Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood. He gives us the bread of life discourse. And at the Last Supper, he gives us this long speech that Jesus gave us. But he also gives us the foot washing, right? He doesn't specify the uh, institution. But Paul gives us the institution. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I don't want to draw attention to that. I want to draw attention to what happens after he talks about the institution narrative because he comments about its significance. This is chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. And Paul says, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That's tough language. Okay? How are you going to swing that with the idea that it's just a symbol? Judgment, you know, the language here, it's as though he's saying you will be guilty of killing the Lord, you know? You'll be guilty of profaning the body and blood. He says in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, in other words, without understanding that this is Christ himself, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Okay. So they got it. You know, the next generation, the, the apostles understood it. And we see the, the language that they use is um, breaking of bread. You know, we see this on the road to Emmaus at the end of uh, uh, Luke's gospel. They recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. Remember the two guys walking on the road on the, the day of resurrection, and Jesus travels with them. And it reveals to him, he reveals to them all of the passages in the Old Testament that talked about him. And then they sat down. It's interesting because the whole episode is designed in two parts, right? He opens to them the scriptures, part one, and then the Last Supper, right? And he uses the same language here, you know, in the breaking of the bread. And that's where they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. It's mass, two parts, you know, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. And they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And we see in the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, same author, by the way, it's St. Luke, that the early church, you know, that was their life, the prayers and the breaking of the bread, you know, that was among the list of things that he gave them. So, remember, the, the whole thing we talked about in the beginning, uh, going back to the very beginning, is that the sacraments themselves, and specifically the Eucharist, it's building on the incarnation. Jesus came in the flesh. Okay? He saved us in his humanity. That's an important thing to remember. Jesus is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. But it's not Jesus acting through his divine nature as the second person of the Blessed Trinity that saves us. He saves us because he dies for us in his humanity. Okay? The incarnation is vital. It's the miracle of miracles. God takes on human flesh. And by doing that, it affects every single one of us. We have, we have united ourselves through him, through our representative man, to God. And in that flesh, he now feeds us in the Eucharist. And he has taken that human flesh into heaven, where we saw last time that he is standing as a lamb, as though it's been slain, offering himself for all time. And so when the priest consecrates the bread and wine, it's Jesus coming down. And remember, the, 
the reference to the multiplication of the loaves and fish. That's so important because we see in John 16, or I'm sorry, John 6, verse 13, in the multiplication of the loaves, when they're gathering it up, it says in verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves. The baskets were filled with the five barley loaves. Not the copies of the barley loaves, but with the five barley loaves. Everyone was fed with just the five barley loaves. The significance of that is is vitally important because the Eucharist is not just a copy of Jesus. It is Jesus. When Jesus at the Last Supper held up the bread and said, this is my body. That is the exact same Eucharist that you receive on Sunday. It is the exact same. It may look different, but the substance is the same. We receive the very same Eucharist that Jesus gave to the apostles. It's not a copy. It's not a, you know, a figure or a representation, it is the same Eucharist. Always remember that. All right, we've got a couple of minutes here. Does anybody have any comments or questions? Yeah. Luther, all right. Luther, did, did he buy in to the, to the Eucharist being a real presence? Well, at some point he fell away from it. And Lutheranism talks about uh, uh, not transubstantiation, but consubstantiation, that the bread and wine is there, but Jesus uh, is there temporarily when you receive it, but then afterwards it's just bread. And uh, I mean, it, it's kind of a dance around the issue. So he didn't play. Yeah, I, Luther himself, I'm not sure. Uh, you'd have to get somebody who's uh, more up on, you know, what the the um you know the revolutionaries back then thought you know um but by and large you know certain high church anglicans may believe in the eucharist in a a similar way to us but you know the vast majority of protestants just take it as a symbol you know um uh methodists i understand they're more traditional methodists had a closer idea of what the eucharist was um apparently they had a lot of hymns that were you know, talked about the real presence as such. Um, but again, I'm, I'm no expert on that. Yeah. Of kind of, you know, skimming through John 6 kind of quickly and not really dwelling on it too much. Because when you take Jesus' words seriously, it's, it's hard to get past that. When I first read that and understood the significance of what he was saying, it's like a bomb going off in my head, you know. It's like, my gosh, he really meant it. <laughs> I mean, where else do you see Jesus repeating things over and over and over again? Yeah, Laura. You know, when you were reading that passage about discerning and not to drink of it if you're not. Right. Okay, I also took it a little bit further, like, um, like going to confession. Yeah. Because you do the same thing before confession. Right, yeah. And that's tied in. I mean, confession... 
all the, in a certain sense, all the sacraments are oriented towards the Eucharist. We're baptized so that we can receive the Eucharist. We're confirmed so that we can tell others about the Eucharist. You know, we get married so we can have kids who can have the Eucharist. Priests are ordained so that they can confect the Eucharist. You know, in a certain sense, all of them revolve around the Eucharist. So confession, you know, we have that so we can go back and receive the Eucharist and receive it more worthy. Yeah. Right. There it is. Yeah. And we'll get the confession eventually. Anybody else? Yeah, John. Uh, you mentioned one of the Eucharistic miracles that was. Oh yeah. Uh, I believe it was in the 600s uh, in Lanciano, Italy. You can look it up on the internet. There was a priest who was doubting the the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. As he was holding it up at Mass, it changed into his body and blood. The, the wine congealed, and it still exists to this day, you know, however many, 12, 1300 years later. And they've done tests on it. And the, the blood type is AB. The tissue from the Eucharist is heart tissue. Okay. And AB uh, blood, by the way, is, is common to the Middle East. It's, it's not something that's you really see very frequently outside of the Middle East, you know, so it's consistent with him as a Jew. So, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. And I believe they, uh, uh, the Shroud of Turin, they typed the blood that was there. It was also AB blood, I'm pretty sure. So, you can look at it online. I mean, it, it, you can still see it, you know, the, the Eucharist. It's preserved after all this. If it was real, well, let me reframe that. If it was anybody else's, flesh and blood it would have disintegrated long ago but it's maintained itself after all these years eighth century, eighth century yeah 700s lanciano italy yeah there's an interesting book called oh yes right yeah there's a ton of them and there's some that have happened you know here in the united states and not all that long ago uh, I believe so. I mean, it's it's hard to keep up with because it really does happen a lot. Yeah. South America too. All right. Let's go ahead and end with a prayer here. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, in your loving providence, you send your holy angels to watch over us. Hear our prayers, defend us always by their protection, and let us share your life with them forever. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.